You're listening to the Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Vint Podcast. My name is Brady, joined as always in the studio by sunny Philadelphia, Billy. <laughs> Philadelphia, huh? No, still Los Angeles, but yeah, no, great to be back. And Billy was away a little bit while well, we kind of flagged that last episode and he'll share a little bit about those travels maybe here in a second. And then we have a few company updates, kind of just status updates on where we're at with collections and some really interesting materials that we have coming to investors soon, which we'll discuss a little bit. But Billy, why don't you tell us about your travels? Yeah. And then for everybody else's sake too, we we wrap up with our interview this week is with Vince Anter. We'll discuss him a little bit more of Vs for Vino, but he gives some great Thanksgiving recommendations for your pairing pleasure for this holiday weekend. But yeah, no, um, my my trip was good. We went to, it was kind of a, I kind of tell some people lifelong dream, but it's more of a wine lifelong dream. Basically, as long as I've been reading about wine, I went to Piemonte. So we flew into Milan and then drove out to the wine country, which I mean, there are closer wine countries, but it's a two hour drive to the heart of Piemonte and Barolo is the main commune, like that general region that we stayed in. We actually stayed in a little town called Lamora. It was gorgeous. It was truffle season, which is why everybody says you need to go in late October and November. So we had a couple, a few private tastings, got to go down. I got to see their giant versions of barrels, these big multi tens of thousands of liter barrels that they age wine in traditionally are called Boti. I got to see those in person. And what are they made out of? Those are oak. They can be made out of other woods over time, but they're predominantly just really big oak. There's neutral barrels for the most part that are used for decades. In a lot of cases, sometimes they're so big, they have to be built within the cellar themselves because their cellars are also old. They just have small doors. Yeah, it was something that struck me is, you know, everybody talks about Burgundy and Piemonte being similar or Piemonte being more like Burgundy now with all the different plots and crews and Ludit named plots, I guess is Ludit's French kind of translation. But I didn't expect one, the elevation. We stayed in Lamora, which is one of the higher areas, but there's very large ridges but they go up pretty high i don't know exact elevation but it's close to a thousand feet but it's pretty high and then every along each of these little kind of tongues that reach down which is again what longue kind of means in the local language there's little aspects all the way around so it's like a straight ridge and then coming off either side there's like these little valleys so everything gets little angles with the sun everything has different soils depending on kind of where it is in the greater region so it's really easy to understand how all of these plots can produce kind of their own unique wines. Yeah, I would have to think that kind of that specificity and division between vineyards and like different crew and maybe like levels of vineyards and stuff like that has to lend towards a positive kind of reception in the secondary market just because there's kind of implied rarity when you can say, oh, well, this is from here and there's only maybe two producers that make wines in this you know particular area. It seems like a good recipe for an emerging region on the secondary market. Yeah, and it's like Hermitage in a way, where if you know the, the wines of Hermitage, one Jean-Louis Chave makes his style, and it's kind of a, a blend of all of the top little parcels in Hermitage that he kind of goes, and he just calls it Hermitage. And some people do their single vineyards there. And so for decades, the top Barolos, where they believe the best way to do it was to take fruit from different areas and kind of 
meld their different unique aspects. So maybe one's a little fruity or one's a little bit more tannic and make the best wine they could, which they still do in a lot of cases. And they're still really good. But the interest in the region and more research that's being done, they told me about multiple different like soil and topographical studies that were just been finished in the past like decade are really lending themselves to being able to produce these site-specific and region-specific wines rather than just like macro Barolo, macro Barbaresco. Yeah, it's cool. I think that outside of, like for me, outside of Spain, Italy is definitely a place that I don't know Like, where, if I would go to like, you know, Piemonte or Tuscany or just try and do all of it, but I like the land and then drive out. I'm a big fan of driving around whenever I go to places like that. Yeah, it's the best way to really see the, the country, but I love driving in Europe in general. But one thing that's kind of funny is we stopped at a gas station on the way back. And just for fun, I got a Ribola Jala, sparkling Ribola Jala from the gas station. You've heard me talk about this in the terms of skin contact. But like in, in most of the books I read, aside from in that part of Slovenia where they make ageable, skin-worthy contacts, my WZ books were mainly like, it's tends to be an average to good sparkling wine grape. And I was like, what? Like people, you know, at the natural wine bars, you're paying so much for it. So I found a bottle for $3.50. And I was like... At the gas station? At the gas station. Is that like gas sale. station sushi or way better? I was going to find out. So I, <laughs> it was on sale. It was normally full price $7. So I was like, got to test this out. And it was actually not bad. I would say like the acid was still there. There was some a bit of minerality it's like you know how like cheap sparklings in the u.s tend to be very like fruit forward and maybe sometimes mm -hmm. a little sugary it was actually like pretty good balance i wouldn't call it like amazing but we had it after only 45 minutes in the fridge so it wasn't even all the way cold and it was surprisingly good for three dollars and fifty cents i think my expectations were so low that it was surprised but we went to dinner that night at a stanley tucci apparently went into milan and went around and ate at one of these places and we went to one of his restaurants accidentally and they actually gave us like a more aged Ribola Jala that was fully sparking as well. So I was like, oh, this is a yeah, perfect nice. comparison. How much would that be like, if you're not buying that at a restaurant? Well, that was or part at of a gas station, sorry. That was part of a pairing menu. So I don't know. That one was probably <laughs> not $350. Probably, no, it was probably, you know, $40, $50, bucks maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's pretty impressive, though, that you didn't even have it like really fully chilled and it still was showing itself all right. Yeah, no, I had fully prepared my buddies to taste something horrible. And they were like, yeah. this isn't that bad. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it's always good to beat expectations. Cool. Would you go back? I mean, obviously yeah. you would. Yeah, that's yeah. a dumb question. No, I, I think it was really cool. I definitely go back. Doesn't necessarily need to be in, in truffle season. We did get a meal in Alba one night and bought our own little truffle. And we just they give you like a grater and you just can grate it on everything you want. So nice. I kind of got the truffle part out of me, but I think we'll go maybe in the summertime when it's nice and warm and tons of bikers. I didn't realize it was a big cycling place. You nice. need an e-bike if you're a normal person, but these people are hauling up some pretty steep. Bikes, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah. I remember when we were in Burgundy, one of the producers we went to, I'm trying to remember the name. It might've been, well, I'm not even going to try because I, I can't distinguish now which one it was, but they produced truffles and they had all kinds of different truffle mayonnaise and truffle this and that. Took home some of it, and but their whole tasting was included truffles. That was in the spring, so I guess it's probably not their season for truffles yeah. there. Maybe it is, but all I know is truffle season in Piemonte is the fall. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's where we went. But yeah, I highly recommend it. And we made a little stop just to look at the very bottom of Lake Como on the way back. And I also think everybody should check that out. From that little taste, it was really pretty. But I've seen such great things too. So we'll definitely be back in the area sometime. Cool, that's awesome. Well, don't know. I won't be traveling between now and the end of the year. Are you doing? You're not going out of the country between now and 
next year, are you? We're going to Mexico for Christmas, like Puerto Vallarta, but nothing wine related. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, In the meantime, I mean, you know, obviously we're getting ready to head into the holiday. We're looking ahead to more collection launches soon. So folks should definitely stay tuned for more information about upcoming offerings. We're looking to release a good many collections, I think, between now and quarter one. So, you know, obviously, as we get through this holiday Thanksgiving, investors can stay tuned on our platform for that. We also have some resources that we'll be getting out to folks probably after the holiday, I would imagine. We're excited to release two new white papers to our investors. They're really our first white papers since we've gotten underway with more content and more information, more data flowing out to our users. We put together these two white papers really to take a deeper look at wine as an asset class. So our first white paper takes a look at and is our attempt at providing Vint's overall thesis for wine and spirits as asset classes over and against other traditional assets. So our CEO, Nick, spent a lot of time putting his thoughts together on this. We worked with, um, obviously, our wine team and pulling together a lot of data. And we think that it's a super helpful resource for investors as they evaluate our platform and our assets compared to some others out there. Additionally, kind of looking a little bit deeper at Vint's assets and the assets we've brought on to our platform specifically, we have our Investment Markets, Fine Wine, and Other Asset Classes white paper, which is a look at Vint's offerings through quarter three of 2022. So I think both of those will have more information about them, obviously, as they come out and more context around them. Both of them will provide a lot of really good detail about how we think about sourcing assets within our category and really how we look at allocating these collections for investors and how investors should think about allocating them to their portfolio. So stay tuned and we'll have more on that soon. Then Billy, we obviously want to provide like some forward looks into our upcoming offerings. Can't say too much at this time, only that we will have a really strong mix of collections in this next batch, which will take us from now until the end of quarter four, until the end of the year. We'll have wine from a number of different regions as well as a healthy amount of whiskey too. So a lot on the horizon. Yeah. No, definitely stay tuned. It should be soon. We're working hard on the back end to have stuff ready for you guys. In the meantime, it's going to be Thanksgiving. It's going to be a great holiday time. So we have an episode here for you from the guy who basically created and is the star of Vias for Vino, which is a wine show. It was on Amazon and now it's 100% free on YouTube. He also has his own website and it's one of my favorite wine shows that I watch with my girlfriend all the time. It's a perfect balance of wine nerdiness, travel, food, and basically education, but not beating you over the head with it. I think it's really approachable to all wine levels. So I was really excited that he agreed to come on. So we had Vince, the founder, come on and kind of tell us about the show, what its inspiration was, some of his tips for buying wine in store, how to get a quality wine, and then also his recommended Thanksgiving wines because he calls Thanksgiving his Super Bowl. So... Pretty excited for that interview. And yeah, we'll stay tuned here. Before we do jump into that one, though, Brady, what's your favorite Thanksgiving food? Favorite Thanksgiving food? I'm picking up, I don't know if it's my favorite, but I'm excited for it this year, like a honey baked ham from the honey baked ham store. My father-in-law usually does that, but we're not spending Thanksgiving with him this year. So I'm like, yeah, maybe I'll introduce that in my side of the family. So. Nice. That was one of our go-tos. I do that now every December. That's like me if I went at the beginning and then we eat it all December. Nice. Yeah, you need it. Like the day after honey baked ham with like 
a warm biscuit and some butter in it or something like that. And just like the cold ham. That's, that's the best. Yeah. Mine's not exciting this year, but for whatever reason, I'm just thinking a lot about stuffing. I don't know why. I heard somebody mention oyster stuffing recently. Is that something you've ever heard of in the South? Yeah. Oyster stuffing. I've definitely heard of that. We haven't done it. We usually do fried oysters either for Thanksgiving or Christmas or both sometimes, but I think we'll probably do some this year. It's kind of like me, my wife and my dad all like oysters. My mom doesn't eat them, but I'll probably fry some of them up on Thursday, either Thursday or Sunday. Nice. All right. Well, those are what we're looking forward to. And we kind of get into the wines that we like to drink with Thanksgiving in the episode. So here, without further ado, is Vince Anter from Vias for Vino. All right. Hi, Vince. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, as I mentioned in the intro, this has been a long time coming. Me and my girlfriend, May are, are big fans of Vias for Vino. We've been, I think it's been over multiple years now. I think I was just looking at your episodes and I remember being so excited when the uh, Valle de Guadalupe episode came out. It must be like two and a half years of listening. So tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got started making Vias for Vino. Yeah, of course. I'm very flattered that you're following along. It's been fun to see it grow. Uh, it was something I started a couple years ago. I actually started all the way back in 2016. First episodes came out 2018. And what it was an answer to the problem of where was the wine TV show that was going to help me learn about wine. I took my certified sommelier exam when I was back working in restaurants. And I was working in the industry. And so it was fine for me to do the traditional route, which was... I wanted to do the flashcards and the studying and the book study and the test. That was fine for me because I worked in the industry. I was going to use all that information. But I found that there was, one, no way for casual consumers to learn about wine. And two, there was definitely nobody who was doing it with the travel food element incorporated, doing that Bourdain-esque travel show of wine, which to me is so important because wine is, I always say wine is everything. Wine is the culture and the people and the history and the place and the food and it's everything. That's what makes it exciting. And the best kind of informational videos out there were webcam, people in front of their webcam. And at worst, it was book study. And so I said, can I make something that'll help people casually learn about wine? Nice. Yeah, that makes sense. And we can elaborate on it a little bit more too, is how you kind of land that happy medium in between not saying it's not advanced, but like wine folly, for example, and then things like you were mentioning of like Guild of Sommeliers or Som TV, or you're kind of like right in the middle of that, like uh, interesting for all education levels, really. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I should back up a little bit for anybody who hasn't seen the show. What it is, it's a 45-minute television show. I model it as much as I can after some of our, you know, my idol shows, you know, the Parts Unknown or the Somebody Feed Phil with a little bit of kind of Alton Brown sprinkled in where I do some segments where they're like educational and we really break down some of the science of the wine and what do these grapes taste like? And so that's kind of the the basic premise of it. And I appreciate you saying we kind of hit that medium because that's what I wanted. I didn't want it to be too technical, but I also didn't want it to be like, what wine pairs with the vibes I'm feeling right now, where it's like too meta. I wanted it to be right in the middle of your learning, but also it's just a fun show, even if you're not really into wine. And that's, I think, a good thing is a lot of people use the show as an excuse to get their spouses into wine or their partners or family who maybe aren't as into it and think it's intimidating. Try and hit that medium. 
how did you end up actually getting into wine in the first place? I think you mentioned in one of the episodes you moved out here or out to Los Angeles. You're back in Chicago now to be a musician. How did you transfer? Yeah, initially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Initially, I wanted to be a rock star. I grew up playing music, played drums, I played guitar, I sung. After college, I moved out to LA and tried to be a rock star, but so did everybody else in Los Angeles. And so when I determined that I was good, not great as a musician, I said, all right, well, I can either keep this going in this kind of weird field of music where you have to be amazing and also you have to have a ton of luck and you really don't have a lot of control over your success, at least as much as you would like. Or I could do this other thing I got into, which was wine. I was working in bars and restaurants and bartending. I did do some somming. I actually spent most of my time behind the bar. But eventually I had some mentors who encouraged me to get into wine and I took the test. And that's how we picked off with the, hey, there's no resources out there to learn about this. And as I kind of decided I like hospitality and I like wine, but I don't necessarily want to give up all my nights and weekends forever by working in restaurants. I said, what else could I do? And there was that gap of nobody was doing the video education component. And so I said, could I take my skills, which was I have an IT degree, I have a business degree. I was pretty comfortable on camera because I had done that with the music. I was on stage. So I, I said, can I combine these skills and do something unique with it? And that's what we that's what came out of it was V is for Vino. Yeah, one thing that stands out to me about your videos, and I was brushing up on some today. I know that I've watched a good amount of your content in the past and then was kind of reintroduced to it like as we've come around these conversations. And something I was impressed with was how the topics you address and the questions you address are the right questions, right? They're not necessarily the ones that people ask, like obscure questions that people ask, like, uh, like, um, not obscure, but maybe less meaningful. What wine glass do I drink X out of? Like, who cares? Just drink the wine. That's fine. But so much of wine content out there is on things that really don't impact the way you walk into a store and select a wine and enjoy the wine. I feel like you ask and answer all the right questions. What did that come from? Did that come from how you were thinking about wine before you got a formal education in it? Or did it come from maybe conversations with folks as you had already gotten into the hospitality and restaurant industry? Yeah, a little bit of both. You mentioned wine folly and I talked to Madeline and when in one of our episodes, in our Walla Walla episode, I got to meet her and hang out with her. And one of the things she mentioned is that was part of the reason she started Wine Folly was the things that wine companies and wineries and other wine education were telling consumers weren't necessarily what the consumers needed or wanted to know. When you go in sometimes to a tasting room, they'll start getting into the soil types and the slope and the elevation, they'll go really high level really quick with a lot of consumers. And it would be the equivalent of chatting with somebody about finance and getting really, really in depth before they understood the basics of like economics and how the market worked. Like there has to be that foundation of knowledge. And at the same time, I did find that people craved more knowledge than the influencer telling them that this is a fun wine and not giving them any background behind it. There really was people, I thought when I started Vias for Vino, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to sprinkle in the knowledge and really just make it fun and quirky because people aren't going to want to know. Well, I quickly discovered that the knowledge component was the thing that people were drawn to in the show. You know, a lot of the comments you'll see is like, oh my gosh, I learned more from this video 
than I did from five years of going to tasting rooms because there's that it is. And I appreciate you saying we strike that balance because it is tough to achieve advanced enough to be interesting, but simple enough to be accessible. So that's our goal. Yeah, that makes sense. And Brady, he does have a good little video on which wine glass to use, but it's more of why you would use a wine glass. But that exact balance is, yeah, that's kind of why we watch it. And it also helps me explain, I think that the tasting room thing is interesting because it helps things that I would tell my significant other all the time. Like if you just put it in a slightly different way or like take one step back and then get into it, it's like, it's much easier to understand sometimes just having that like slightly different angle on it. So I think that's pretty cool. So how has the show developed? Like from your initial days all the way through now, like what has changed? What has stayed the same? I guess I I heard your question and answer session and I'm sure you've been getting a lot of feedback, like you mentioned. How have you taken that and evolved the show over these few years? Yeah, it's been a fun ride. I started it as I wasn't going to make a TV show. I was going to make a wine club that happened to have video. And I was just going to do the videos almost like the side project. And the revenue model was going to be the wine club. I was going to ship the wines all over. Well, I quickly determined that it's almost impossible to ship wine if you're a small business. It's even hard for large businesses. Forget if you're a small one. The regulations, and I could talk an hour about the three-tier system and how they keep small businesses like mine from the wine shipping and wine selling game. It's really sad. It's very political, not right or left political, but driven by a bunch of lobby money from sort of larger entities. But anyway, it's way too hard for me to ship wine. So I had to get that on my head right away. So I did the first season, I tried to ship the wine, and then I made the videos too. And initially the videos took off. Like the videos, especially we had submitted to be included in Amazon's portfolio. The first season got on there and they really started taking off. And I was like, oh, this is where the this is where the demand is. There's no demand for another person selling wine. There's enough people doing that, but there's demand for these videos. And so I kind of pivoted. I said, okay, I'm going to do the videos. Initially, the first couple seasons were more focused on the wineries and the wine itself. I think in our fourth season, which is what just released last summer, seven new episodes, mostly in Europe, that was the season I really felt we arrived. And now it's focused, I would say, 50-50 on the culture and the food and everything around the wine as much as it is the wine, which is kind of always my goal. I just didn't have that luxury when we first started based on how we were getting funded and what was happening. But now I have a little more pull, if you will, the bigger we get. And so I can make this show that is this great representation of the entire region, not just a single wine or winery or person. And so that's the big change. We've turned it more into this kind of cultural experience show as much as it is the wine show. You have videos on a number of different topics, number of different regions, you know, your longer segments doing a lot of the traveling, like you said. How do you make those decisions? Do you take that from like viewer feedback? Do you have set in your mind? These are kind of my next stops. This is what I want to accomplish when I get there. Or is it more fluid than that? No, it's probably not as fluid as people would hope. I think people hope I just show up and go on a magical (laughs) wine adventure and we have a crew documenting it. And unfortunately, the reality of TV production is that you kind of have to come in with a little bit of a plan. I What I do is I start by saying, okay, where do I want to try and go this season? Where haven't I gone? What's a good balance of episodes? And it's also where we operate partly on sponsorships. We work with sometimes wine boards or tourism boards of the regions. 
And it's where can we make it happen? Once we have the episodes locked in, I start talking about, okay, what is my theme for each episode? And then what is my theme for the whole season? For the theme for each episode, you know, there's usually something that needs to be told, a story that needs to be told about the region. And sometimes it's what you expect and sometimes it isn't. When we did our Bordeaux episode, you would think that we would want to talk about all the growths and the big history there. But when I started diving into it, you learn, oh, that's like 5%, not even, of the wine that's produced in Bordeaux. And there's a lot of amazing stories to be told outside of that. And so we said, all right, for this episode, that's kind of going to be our theme. We're going to talk about everything else that people don't normally see because, you know, in Bordeaux, those major wineries have been covered to death. Let's talk about some of the other things. Whereas in, we went to Provence and instead of talking about the cheap rosé that oftentimes get exported. And we did a similar thing in Prosecco. A lot of cheap Prosecco gets exported. Let's talk about the higher quality stuff that exists there. Let's kind of bend people's perceptions as to what they think a region is. So we come in with these goals. Of what is the story you want to tell? And then oftentimes too, when I get back into the editing room, I had my experience there, my physical experience and we say, how is that emotional experience affected the episode too? That's when I get a little artsy. I write my voiceovers and we get to, I try as best I can as to transport people to the feeling that I had when I was there. And that's easier said than done, but that's what we try to do once we're in the editing bay. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. To give you credit, even in your first episode, the Santa Barbara one, I live in Los Angeles, obviously. When we went to Santa Barbara, we went to Industrial Eats because you had gone there. So, I mean, I think your food was linked in from the beginning, kind of, a little bit. Yeah, we definitely always had food segments. They were more tutorials at the start where I, like, cooked with the guy start to finish so you can make it at home. And I've leaned away from that as a little bit. But, I mean, food's so important when it comes to wine, right? We don't, most of us don't drink wine without food. And so that was really, really important right up top was to make sure that every episode had a food component, whether I cook with a chef and he shows us, or at the very least, we're getting served some dishes. I do think it's really important. Yeah. So on, on that note, part of this, the point of this episode is to talk about Thanksgiving pairings and how to purchase the wines for Thanksgiving. So do you want to dive in first on how to, to navigate the wine purchasing kind of segment? And then we can dive into your specific kind of recommendations or favorites for Thanksgiving? Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk about Thanksgiving wines in general? Or do you want to talk about just purchasing kind of investment grade wines, which I know we mentioned too? Yeah, I think let's have the conversation now about purchasing, we'll call fine wines. We'll talk about this like delineation between, and I guess this now is a good time to talk about the definition. So in, in my mind, and I'd like to hear yours as well, a fine wine is basically a well-made wine, not something that's made in high volume or bulk that's meant to age. And by that, I mean, you know, can last multiple years and be improving in quality and potentially value, I guess, but mainly improving in quality over time. So to me, that that is a fine wine. It's a well-made wine that can improve over time and develop for a certain period of time. And then an investment grade wine has all of those characteristics ingrained, but also has a layer of brand notoriety, some history of price appreciation, as well as kind of this ingrained demand. And that's typically driven also by low supply. So there is a slight difference because the bubble of fine wine is so large. 
Yeah, I mean, fine wine, the great thing is that in 2022, there's never been more fine wine in the market in any point in history. The technology, if you talk to winemakers, what they'll say is that both the farming technology and the cellar technology has improved to the point where like bad wine is kind of hard to find. Now, we do and bad is in like find faulty. A way to, faulty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, we do find a way to make cheap wine that has, you know, a lot of times, especially here in the U.S., all sorts of additives and things that you don't want to mess around with. But as far as faulty wine, it's it's few and far between. Unless you're getting, you know, Grandpa Joe's bathtub wine, it just barely exists, which is great. And so then your next step is, all right, how do I get, how do I get good, fine wine? And I would actually challenge one of your notions, which is that I don't think you necessarily need to have a fine wine that can age. I have a big conversation, and I think this is one of the differences between investment grade and fine wine, is to me vintage. I think the, the number one thing that you're looking for with a wine that can age is your vintage, because a good vintage will give you the structure, the acidity structure and the tannin structure, and sometimes the sugar structure to age. But there's a lot of great wines that are made in off years that I maybe wouldn't put down for five to 10 years. But if I'm opening it young, to me, it's a waste of money to get a really good vintage that I'm going to open. You know, if I'm buying a 2019 vintage, that was great, right? Let's get specific. Let's say I'm buying a Bordeaux, like a recent Bordeaux vintage that was pretty good was 18. All right. But if I buy an 18 and open it today, to me, that's kind of a waste. Because that 18 isn't really going to peak until, you know, 5, 10, 15 years out. If it's a really good vintage, even longer. If I'm buying a Bordeaux that I'm going to drink today, I might go for like an in-between vintage. Like 17, which was not, as long as it's not a bad vintage, like 17 or, you know, 14. Those are great to open right now. They don't necessarily have the capacity to go for the long haul, but I'm cool with them today. I just avoid bad vintages. Like 13 is kind of known as a historically bad vintage in Bordeaux. So I would just avoid that. When you're going to open your wine, I think is a big consideration when you're looking at purchasing fine wine. Yeah. The aging point is kind of a, a blanket statement. And there are varietals and styles, whether it be like Sauvignon Blanc from certain regions or things that you want to drink when they're aromatic or young that you wouldn't want aging necessarily to be part of that process anyway. I think what I was getting at is, and even to your point is the a lot of the lower, the high volume, lower cost wines, the value wines, if you will, will actually are mainly fruit driven. And they're mainly kind of, there may be a couple notes. So if you let those even stay for a year, maybe a year and a half, they're really not meant for that. Whereas like that Bordeaux you're talking about, it might not need to be developing over many, many years. It just won't necessarily even like sure. it, it won't maintain a for cliff. a year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, yeah. then again, there are many fine wines that you know, from certain regions, certain varietals that aren't meant to go more than a year either. So. Yeah. I mean, the number one thing I would say, and I give this advice all the time and I get a lot of pushback from it, especially from new wine consumers is just do not buy your wines from the grocery store. And this goes back to your three tier system and who controls what you see on those shelves and what kind of wines are allowed to be there. It's not, and then people take it as there's no good wines in the grocery store. And that's why they get mad at me. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you have a much higher percentage of good wines in a wine shop or a better yet, a local wine shop. Like a big one is great for certain things and we can get into that. And then your local wine shop for your daily drinkers going every night of the week, 
is super important for a whole host of reasons. They find one, they're not taking any of those mass produced wines because grocery stores pretty much have to take big wines, right? If you're a big chain, I need enough of that same wine to go in all of my 15, 18, 20, 100 stores, right? Whereas I can find smaller allocation wines in my local shop. So that's your one reason. Another reason is because your staff there is going to know those wines intimately, especially if it's a small shop and they only have 100 SKUs, 100 different bottles. They're going to know those wines really intimately, and they're going to store those wines better as well. They're going to take care of them, you know, especially when you start getting into expensive wines. If you're going to spend more than 50 bucks on a wine, you want to make sure it was stored properly. And you have a much better shot of that happening than a grocery store. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And also something on your grocery store note is if a wine is really popular, a grocery store doesn't want to run out. Like the whole point is for you to be able to supply enough for it to keep selling if it takes off. So Brady, were you about to say something there? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I like your, you kind of paused on a little bit, but the difference between a wine store, maybe like a Total Wine or I was trying to remember the shop in Chicago that you highlighted in, in Benny. Yeah, that's right. Maybe one of these like local or regional chains, obviously Total Wine is a national chain versus individual wine shops. Can you talk, stop there a little bit and just elaborate on what you were trying to say there? Yeah, both have their place. If I'm buying definitely some of the wines that are the bigger names, maybe investment grade, especially if they're allocated, it sometimes helps to go to either one of those chains that you know, has a reputation with these producers and they get a certain amount of those versus your local shop that maybe doesn't have those connects or contacts. Now, sometimes your local shop will have that. It really depends how good your local shop is. But to me, the local shop is for like my daily drinkers, my I'm popping in and grabbing a bottle. Whereas those bigger shops can oftentimes be the ones you, I need something specific. This is, I need this exact wine or it's, you know, when it comes out, can you let me know? they oftentimes will have a bigger selection of the bigger names. And so I think both have their pluses and minuses. You know, local shop is also nice because they'll get to know your tastes. You'll get to know the people there. They'll know what you like and don't like what they gave you last time. Did you like it? Oh, great. Let me get you something else similar. So you get that more personal touch, whereas the bigger kind of chains sometimes can get better allocations on stuff, specific items that you want. So if you're shopping for Thanksgiving... Are you going to the big box store? Or are you going to the local wine shop? It's tough. It depends. I mean, so I, it's funny. I'm doing, I'm editing it today, actually. My thing, how to, what wines I recommend for Thanksgiving. And it depends how you shop for Thanksgiving. If you shop like me for Thanksgiving, I do like five courses and five different wines. So I kind of probably need some selection, maybe the bigger shop. But if I'm only getting one or two bottles, if you're like most normal people who are just picking up a bottle for Thanksgiving, then I'm going to my local shop. But I do Thanksgiving big, and so I kind of need a solid selection of things. So I might go to the bigger shop. Nice. On that note, yeah, it's always interesting to me because everybody asks what I would recommend. But like my family, for example, my dad's side of the family doesn't really drink at all. So we've never had actual wine at Thanksgiving. They live in Pittsburgh. So I go over there and I just try to buy local varieties, like the hybrids that are made over there or like Norton or something just for fun. And it's like a novelty as like a side of dinner, which is pretty interesting. But and then I have like my friends giving where we'll actually drink wine with Thanksgiving. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I also think it's totally acceptable to have like a bottle for you and the select people who care about wine in your fridge and set aside and then put out some decent, but not super expensive stuff for everybody else who doesn't care about wine at all. I think that's totally okay. Yeah. I think that's one of Brady's go-to moves. Yeah. Know thy audience. (laughs) (laughs) Well, awesome. Well, let's dive into a couple of what you would recommend for various courses throughout Thanksgiving here. Yeah, 100%. I can go through them all kind of quickly. So you need your cooking wine. That is your wine that you're going to do before you really start eating. And you kind of want low alcohol. And I actually really love if you can find a good dry cider that's made like a wine. So not a beer can cider, but like a proper cider that's fermented. Oftentimes they're done traditional method. So they're done like a champagne or they're aged on the leaves or both. And so you get some really complex wines. Calvados from France, they make these. DuPont makes a really good one. But also there's some great ones from New York and from Virginia. So you and Washington, you can find some really high quality ciders. And I like them because they're apples, so they're fall, they're low in alcohol, they're bubbly, they're a good starter. Yeah. And uh, the, I was gonna say the Basque area of Spain also has some interesting ones, but that's a little more kind of can be funky for some folks, but it's yeah. also interesting. Yeah. And a lot of places that make regions that make wine also will do some ciders too. Those are usually my favorite styles. And then I usually, you got to have some champagne. I think with appetizers, you got a whole bunch of different styles of food, seafood, fried food, need a versatile wine. I like Pierre Peters for a lean style and Bollinger for a rich style. I use the holidays as an excuse to go very on the beaten path with my wine selections. Like I might drink a grower champagne on some other occasion but the holidays i like to get like some of the bigger names it's just kind of a fun thing to do excuse to do that you know mm-hmm. 100%. um and then i'll do i'll move on if i do a soup course i usually like to do like a pumpkin soup or butternut squash soup and it's an excuse to throw riesling into the mix if i can find a good german riesling an aged riesling i'll do that and then for the main event I don't reinvent the wheel. I think Pinot Noir and or Chardonnay, I usually try and bring them both is the way to go. And you can use this as an excuse to do your domestics at this point. You know, it's main course. It's American holiday. Let's do some American wines. I like cool climate Pinots from Santa Barbara. Those are some of my favorites. The Oregon stuff can be great too. As far as producers, man, Paul Lotto makes some great stuff. Ojai Vineyards Pinot Noir is great. Whitcraft is great. But I tell people, if you wanted to get one wine, Beaujolais is also awesome because it's kind of like this in-between of white and red. You can chill it. It's a fun wine. It's easy to drink. It's a crowd pleaser. And you can go with a Beaujolais and kind of be covered. So I always tell people, if you're drinking one wine, that's a decent one. On your Beaujolais side, are you going village or are you going down to like Nouveau? I guess that's an interesting thing. If What advice would you give to people trying to pick out a Beaujolais? Because it can run the gamut in terms of what you're getting in the bottle if you don't know what you're getting. Yeah, the Nouveau stuff is, if you got to get a bunch of bottles, if you're covering wine for you know a big family, right? You got 12, 15 people there, you need to get a couple bottles. You can get some Nouveau because it's fun and chillable and easy. I tend to go with either Village or Crew level stuff for my personal consumption. Um, it's still, cause it's still not that expensive. Like even the, some of the best Beaujolais is 40 bucks. You know, it's not as cheap as it used to be, but it's not kit like crazy expensive. So you can easily with those Santa Barbara Pinots that I remember I moved to LA 10 years ago, man, Santa Barbara was cheap. Now those Pinots will cost 70 bucks and up, 
it's crazy. Whereas a top Beaujolais is, you know, 40 bucks and you can even find good crew stuff for like 25, you know? Yeah. And I think Beaujolais is a good example of why you would want to go to a specialist wine shop. Because if you didn't know, some of those crew Beaujolais only have the crew on there. So you might see it labeled like Fleury or Morgon rather than Beaujolais and you would miss it if you didn't know what you were looking for. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, you can get Beaujolais Village and be fine, but I do the crew stuff. I think it's worth the extra five bucks that it costs mm-hmm. to go with some of the crew stuff for sure. Agreed. Is your large champagne just stepping back? Is it like Cristal, Krug, Dom? I like bigger, toastier styles. And I've had Cristal and Dom and all that. Again, I go back to Bollinger because they're, I think it's their Grand Ani is like, mm-hmm. man, it's lights out. They also have a late RD recently disgorged Mm -hmm. that is like so good. I like it when it's sat on the leaves for just so like, give me years on the leaves. I love it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are my styles. Would you drink a rosé champagne or even like a rosé cremant or something like that? I kind of think rosé is this weird category of champagne where for some reason they throw a splash of red in there and charge 20% more. I've kind of never <laughs> got the hype of rosé champagne. Maybe I'm wrong. There's some champagne heads who I'm sure will disagree with me. I've never actually been a huge champagne guy. I know a lot of people in the wine space are, but I've never understood that trend. Like why is it so much more money? Cuz cuz champagne's one of the only places where they don't actually make a maceration champagne. They just add a little splash of red often, or at least they can legally. So I've just never got it. Yeah, I think I'm with you. I haven't tasted enough to really have a form opinion, but it is. I think a majority of them are made with that. The You make a white wine base and you make a red wine base and then you blend them. I think part of the more expensive is that back in the day, it was just so cold in champagne that the skins never properly ripened to make that quality base wine that actually just didn't taste like, you know, tannin or just bitter. So I think yeah. over time, that's kind of where that kind of came from. And Bolaget, for example, is more Pinot Noir based anyway. Speaking of Pinot Noir, is that right for the most part? No, Beaujolais Gamay. Not Beaujolais, Bollinger. Sorry, Bollinger. Oh, Bol- oh I, yeah. I, I yeah, try yeah. to pronounce it in different French ways. <laughs> I actually, but, uh, it's funny. I never know. If, I've always, I've heard both ways. I actually Googling it the other day, if it's Bollinger or Bollinger. Because I was always Bollinger because it's Bo- French. You just can't say Bollinger. That's the only thing you can't <laughs> say. <laughs> oh, so is that one of the German ones, I guess? Or is it one of the... I think it's... I think maybe it's German, right? So they do Bollinger. I oh, that's know. always wild. But yes, anyway, it's Pinot Noir based, so it's richer. Yeah, that's, that's why, why a lot of that. So that's right. why I say Dom and I don't have to say the P word. You just say oh. Dom. <laughs> How would you say it, Brady? Give it like a shot. Perignon? Yeah, there you go. That's fine. Okay. Yeah, that's there it. There we go. Dom that's the first you time just, I've, you, I've passed a French I would just say if you just company. mash it. <laughs> yeah, Dom Perignon. With all my French words, I just kind of mash them and say them quickly if I can't say them right. Fun fact, as, as helpful as he was, Dom Perignon hated bubbles in champagne. He always always working to get them out. That's just funny enough. Oh, that's funny. All right. So what, uh, well, what I got to hit my dessert, my dessert Thanksgiving yeah. wine, because that's a that's an important one, because I always tell people, if you're going to do a gift for Thanksgiving, bring a dessert wine, because nobody thinks to bring dessert wine. It's like everybody's going to show up with a bottle of Pinot. Right. But if you show up with a dessert wine, you're the hero, because one, you only need mm-hmm. one bottle to serve a lot of people because you only get a small sip. And it's a really cool, unique thing. And to me, I like Madeira. Because Madeira is that perfect combination of like nutty and toasty and caramely, but still fresh to go with caramely desserts like pecan pie and pumpkin pie and all that. 
And it has a cool story because Madeira was essentially what our founding fathers were drinking when they first arrived here because they couldn't transport regular still wine. It wouldn't last the journey, but Madeira did. So it's kind of this cool story. It's a great wine to bring as a gift. I never thought of linking it to the founding, the colonial times in terms of the Thanksgiving holiday. I think that's really a cool layer to it. Yeah, it's fun. But yeah, for those who haven't tried Madeira, I mean, there's a range of styles and varietals, but a hallmark of it is is the acid that's underneath. So while it is kind of sweet, to your point, if you have it with a like a pecan pot, it'll kind of meet it and complement it on the sweetness. But then the freshness, like you were noting, will just clean out your palate and it won't be cloying at all. Yeah, you get sometimes like a Pedro Jimenez, like sherry, and it's just so syrupy. And like, I can do a sip, but then I'm done. Whereas Madeira is just so fresh. Oh, yeah. Have you ever tried with some of your, speaking of sherry, with some of your soup courses, like an Oloroso, where I grew up, they made a she crab soup and they would always pair that with an Oloroso sherry, weirdly enough, because they didn't drink wine at Virginia Beach. (laughs) No, that's a great pairing. Sherry is one of the most versatile pairing wines out there. Not that super sweet stuff, but like, yeah, the lighter styles can be really awesome. Um, I, I, you know, I never bring sherry anywhere because nobody likes it. It's like such a shame because it's such a cool wine, but that weird nuttiness is just an acquired taste for so many people. And I'm like, even my wife, who's like into wine with me, still I can't get her into sherry. And it's such a shame because it's a great wine. I was listening recently to some podcasts and they were saying soon the scotch industry is actually going to, if they're not already trying to support the sales of sherry, just because they need more butts that have actually had sherry resting in them over time or not sherry butts. Yeah, it should be sherry butts. I think that would be interesting if like literally it makes a comeback just because scotch producers are like, I really need more sherry casks. I've pitched a sherry episode because I I really want to, you know, it's such a misunderstood wine. It was kind of like port. I did a port episode and I was like, oh, how cool that I can demystify this wine for people because people think of port, they think of like, you know, British grandmothers. And it's got such a cool story and history and so versatile in styles. And Sherry's the same. It really is amazing. And I hope I can tell that story one day. Yeah, you definitely should. Swing over to Madeira as well at the same time. We did a little route where we did both and it was pretty awesome. Nice. One one personal question there. Did your significant other like wine when you began or did you have to ease her into it? And how did you convince her to kind of jump on the wine train? Yeah, we basically grew up together. We met as freshmen in college, so we met fairly young. And when I started getting into wine, she was a little behind me just because I was, you know, when you, I don't know if, if anybody's listening who works in restaurants, but what happens is you meet some people who are like older in the restaurant space and they start introducing you to all these cool things that you've never heard of or experienced before. You know, whether it's cocktails or spirits or wine, all these things that are kind of like an acquired taste when you're younger. You know, it's the same reason why I don't love beer at first. I always say the college beer effect where you drink your beer ice cold because you don't really want to taste it. And then eventually you start drinking beer for the taste. Kind of same thing happens with wine, right? It all tastes like wine at first and you slowly get into it. And so I got into it first through the restaurants and then I would bring stuff home to my wife and I'd be like, try this, try this, you know, and then I'd pass that on to my friends. And I remember my roommates too. We lived in LA and we had two guy roommates and my wife. My wife was a saint because you live with three men for a period of time. <laughs> and I would bring stuff home to them and they'd be like, you don't really like drinking this, do you? I was like, no, I do, but you have to, it takes time to get into, you know, that first couple sips, 
it's like coffee. You're just not really into it until you start drinking more of it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think there's a lot of people out there, like even wine collectors I've met who are like still to this day trying to get their significant other into their passion. So I think it's always an interesting question to ask how everybody gets around to it. Some of I've it been is, lucky. She picked it up quick. Yeah, it's been sort of the same experience with my wife, but I think a big part of it for her was understanding what she was supposed to be tasting or quote unquote supposed to be tasting. Because if you come to wine thinking, oh, red wine tastes like X, and then it doesn't meet that expectation, it can throw you off and like give you an unpleasant experience. But I found that prepping people for it, you might notice that you like this tastes different than this one because of these reasons. And they're like, oh, yeah, I get that. That's cool. Instead of like shocking, <laughs> shocking their expectations each time. I'm big on side by side tasting people who are new into wine, like giving them a Burgundy versus a Napa cab, like side by side, because what people do when they get into wine is they go on a wine tasting trip to Napa. The charge is $60 per tasting room. You walk in, you try three of their Cabernets side by side. It all pretty much tastes the same if you don't really know what you're doing. And they have this weird experience where they're like, man, that was expensive and I don't really get it. So I take somebody who's new to wine and I try them two polar opposite wines you know, in, in their house and I say, you know, like cause the, the whole thing people say when they get into it, it when they're young is it all tastes like wine to me. It all tastes like red wine. But if you do two polar opposite wine side by side, there's no way you can say that. You really start to get it. And then from there, you can hone in, you know. How do you approach folks who say they don't like a certain varietal? And I've even a variety. <laughs> I've even seen them say, you know, I hate Chardonnay, but I love Chablis or anything along that route. So. <laughs> Yeah, that was always my game when I was at a restaurant. So that's like one of my biggest, I say pet peeves, but it's not like these people are doing anything wrong. They just unfortunately have been exposed to too much of one style, right? So that was my game when I was in restaurants was I would, people would say, I don't like Chardonnay. And I'd say, well, let me try on a few things. And I line them up. I give them like Chablis and some other things. They'd always love the Chablis and be like, that's Chardonnay uh, because And that's kind of a trick trickster way to do that. Maybe you shouldn't do it that way. But what I will say (laughs) is that I challenge people to drink on the place rather than the grape always. I mean, that's one of my biggest intro to wine pieces of advice is drink based on place, not grape, because two wines from the same region are probably going to have more in common, like two red wines, for instance, are probably going to have more in common than two wines of the same grape from different regions, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It helps to give tangible examples. Like some of the Pinot Noirs coming out of Napa are more similar to the Cabernets coming out of Napa than the Pinot Noir from Burgundy, the lean Pinot Noir from Burgundy. It really comes down so much to the place. And there's some winemaker style and choice in there as well. But just start drinking based off where the wines come from. And when you go to a wine shop, make sure you tell them, or you're talking to a Sam or whatever, I like blank from blank. I like Pinot Noir from Burgundy. I like Cabernet from South America. Give them the grape and the place, and it'll just really help them hone in on the style that you like. It makes me think of that guy we met, Billy, one time that didn't like Tempranillo, so I gave him Rioja. And by that guy, it was <laughs> it was Brady. I was the guy. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, th- I think that makes a lot of sense. When I try telling my friends or my girl, my girlfriend as well, I tell, I, I try to identify the one thing that they do like, whether it be acid or 
lower alcohol and something some sort of structural component they can also just throw out there because even in this day and age too some people are trying to make such an international style of wine sometimes you'll have one from a place and it'll taste similar to somewhere else and you might not work out that way but i think that makes a lot of sense to taste them polar opposites residual sugar and like sweetness versus like fruit ripeness is also one that i found like really resonates with people as like a light bulb moment because what was it recently? I had someone say, like, yeah, I really like uh, like sweeter California cabs. And so we like had a conversation about, you know, perception of sweetness based on the ripeness of fruit versus actual like residual sugar. Just like something that feels like it's in the weeds in the moment, but you realize it's super intuitive and can take you to a whole nother level of understanding and appreciation. You just described the two things that I did when I was working in restaurants more than anything was try to get people to understand place versus grape and try and get people to understand what the word sweet means in wine. Those are by far the two biggest like challenges of hurdles that you have to get over as an intro wine drinker. Those are the two that are really tough. How often would you get somebody walk in and you'd be like, what kind of wine are you into? And they just say dry. Yeah, and dry that's or that's not all. too sweet. Dr- or dry not too reds. Sweet. I like dry yeah. reds. Yeah. And then yeah. the feedback that's not dry enough, not dry enough. I always get a kick out of that. Yeah, it's constant. It's the number one thing you deal with when trying to interpret what people actually like. And normally what they mean is fruity. When they say they don't want something, you know, they want something dry, they mean they don't want it too fruity, you know? Mm-hmm. Or if they say they want sweet, it means they want a fruit forward wine. Or if they, if you give them a wine, they say this is too sweet. Most of the time what they mean is it's too fruity or it's too buttery or vanilla or what have you. Too many of those flavors that we associate with sweet. But I always tell people it's kind of like dark chocolate. You know, dark chocolate has chocolate flavor without the sugar, right? Mm. That's kind of the closest way I can describe it. That makes a lot of sense. And sometimes alcohol is perceived as sweetness too, depending on its level. So that also mixes in. So what's your next steps now for Vias for Vino? What's the future coming up? What are the new seasons going to have? And also, where can people find you now? You mentioned Amazon before, but I'd like to direct people more to the accessible area. Yeah, actually, the easiest way we've pivoted, we're all on YouTube now. I'm going all in on YouTube it is just a great way to get a huge international audience. We can be found by more people. I wanted, I've always wanted the show to be free. And for a long time, it was free on Amazon, but they changed the way they handle their independent creators and they're forcing me to charge. So to me, that's kind of one of my core mission statements was wine education should be accessible and free. And so it's on YouTube. You got to watch ads if you watch on YouTube. If you join our VIP club, you don't have to watch ads. You can watch it on our website ad free. But that's the easiest way. We're on a bunch of other platforms too. You might even catch me in an airport because we work with Reach TV and so we're in some airports. But V is for Vino Wine Channel on YouTube. Plus on the YouTube, I do a bunch of in-between episodes. So I have our main episodes. We do about five to seven a year. And then I have some small, like I'm making a Thanksgiving wine video that's coming out tomorrow. So we have some other stuff too. So follow us on YouTube. And then as far as the future, I filmed two more for the new season, Virginia and Southern Rhone, which were a lot of fun. And I am pitching a lot of other episodes. I actually don't have anything locked in right now, but I want to leave America and Europe because I've done a lot of American episodes and I've done a good amount of European episodes. So I'm trying to do South America. I'm trying to do maybe some places in the Middle East, Lebanon, potentially, or hopefully, I don't know if it, I think it's Eurasia, is is Georgia the country. So we're trying to just get off the beaten path. And I got to get an Australia, New Zealand episode in there too, 
And so I want to just keep going as far and as long as they'll let me is the goal. <laughs> nice. If you could go to Chateau Musar, that would be awesome. We had yeah. Bartholomew Broadbent come on and I'd heard of the wine before, but he kept raving about how it was the wine that his dad showed him that turned him on to liking fine wine. And I was like, all right, well, that must mean it's pretty cool. He keeps claiming it's the best wine in the world by far. And I'm like, well, if a Broadbent's tasted enough wines and still says it's the best, then it must be a pretty cool place. It's pretty amazing. It's really unique. It's Musar has got this kind of pruny overripe character that normally mm. is associated with sweeter wine or like sweeter or like dried wines. But yet it's super fresh, almost like a medium bodied like Sangiovese. I don't know. It's it's unique. It's really cool. Nice. Well, thank you so much for your time here. I think those are all my questions. I'm happy I get to to meet somebody I've been, you know, watching on TV for so long. And I really appreciate the mini episodes because, you know, watching the other ones over and over was getting a, a little older <laughs> as we waited for the next season. But no, it's great. And I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thank you for having me. I hope this provided, you know, my big thing is always just providing value to the people who are listening or watching. I want it to be fun and accessible to do wine. I think what you guys are doing is really great too, which is essentially giving people the opportunity to get into wine investing who, including myself, like don't know a lot about it. Like I know which wines would potentially be investment grade, but for me, going out and personally doing it, it's a whole game in itself. I, you have to just study that. And so the fact that organizations like yours are giving people the option of buying into that without having to know all that knowledge is really cool. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think accessibility is one of our number one goals as well, along with making sure that the assets perform as well as they can. So yeah, bringing the best assets to the world is basically our goal. And sounds like educating them on the background of those same assets is yours. So. Like minds think alike. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And we'll chat soon. Cheers. All right. Well, that was our interview with Vince Anter of Vias for Vino. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation and go check out his channel. Definitely some of my favorite wine content available on the internet right now. Everything is really informative, like we mentioned in the podcast, and really interesting. So Go check out Vias for Vino. As for Vint, we will have another podcast episode for you next week, and we will have news on new collections coming up soon. So stay tuned. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.